This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. is Murder, She Told. True crime stories from Maine, New England, and small town USA. I'm Kristen Seavey. You can connect with the show at MurderSheTold.com or on Instagram at MurderSheToldPodcast. Hello, I'm Kristen Seavey, and welcome to a special episode of Murder, She Told. I've had a lot of people ask me to cover this case. But by now you should know how deep we go with research on single cases. Covering a serial case is a much bigger project that will come with time. But then I got an email from somebody wanting to share her story with me and with you. And I thought, who better to take a look at this case with me than somebody who was there? In the 1980s, a serial killer was preying on women in the area surrounding the Connecticut River Valley in New Hampshire and Vermont. To this day, the identity of the killer is still unconfirmed. The Connecticut River Valley Killer is one of New England's most prolific unsolved cases. There are seven known victims connected to the Valley Killer and one survivor who believes without a doubt she almost became his eighth. Today, she is here to tell her incredible story of survival and resilience. I am so excited to welcome Jane Borowski to Murder, She Told. Hi, Kristen. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here. I am so inspired by your bravery and your willingness to share your story with people. I would really love to just dive in and hear the story from you. So August 6th, 1988, it's a hot summer night. You're 22 years old and seven months pregnant, and you go to the county fair in Keene, New Hampshire with some friends. This is supposed to be a fun night. Yeah, it was supposed to be a fun night. It was supposed to be, it was a fair that all the locals went to every year. And it was in Swansea, a very small, safe town with probably virtually no major crime. So on the way home, you decide to stop at a closed store and get a soda from a vending machine, right? I did. I did. It was um, Gramalo's right on Route 10. It was a main road. And uh, I was thirsty. It was hot. And um, I stopped and a soda. And that's when I met up with Evil. <laughs> I pulled in, went to the vending machine, got my soda, and I noticed this vehicle pull in and parked right next to me on my passenger side of my car. And I didn't think anything of it. I had no reason to think anything of it. And as I was sitting in my car drinking my soda, getting ready to pull out, he walked around the back side of my car, asked me if the payphone worked. And um, opened my car door and tried to get me out of my car. What is going through your mind in this moment? Or is it just laser focus? I've got to get out of here. I was confused. It was so unexpected. And I was scared. You know, as soon as he opened the door and tried to grab me out of the car, I screamed. I screamed so loud, I, I broke blood vessels in my eyes. 
And I was just shocked. It was, I didn't have time to respond. And as he's trying to pull me out of the car, I, I somehow I got my feet up and I was kicking him. And I, I ended up kicking my windshield and smashing my windshield. And the next thing I know, he takes a knife out and says, maybe this will persuade you to get out of the car, which it did. I got out of the car and he was super calm, but yet kind of acting a little weird. You know, I was like, what do you want? What, what, do, you, what do you want? And uh, he told me I beat up his girlfriend. Then I was really, really confused. I'm thinking, oh, my God, this guy's a nutcase. He doesn't even know what he's talking about. <laughs> and I was like, no, I didn't beat up your girlfriend. And he said, isn't this a Massachusetts car? Well, I, I have a New Hampshire car. So he kind of walked to the back of my car like he was looking at the license plate. And at that time, I didn't feel threatened because I felt like, well, maybe he just got confused, you know, thought I was somebody else. So the next thing I know, he starts walking to his vehicle. And I said these words that I regret for the rest of my life. I said, hey, a-ho, what about my windshield? Because it's like he's walking away and I got a smashed windshield. And at the same time, I didn't feel threatened. And that's when he came back around to my side of the car where I was standing. And, uh, you know, people judged me and said, you know, you had a chance to get in the car and take off. What people don't understand is I wasn't threatened. I didn't feel threatened. I felt as if he made a mistake with identifying me with somebody else. But when he came back to me by the car, he put the knife up against my neck. And then that's when I knew, okay, I was scared again. I, I didn't know what he was capable of doing. And then I saw a vehicle drive by on the main road. And I, I knew I, I needed to run and scream for help. That was the only way I was going to get out of that situation. So I did. I dashed. I dashed for the road, screamed, yelled, tried to get their attention. They just drove right by. And next thing I know, he tackled me down like a football player. Um, and I was on my back on the, on the pavement and he was on top of me. And before I could even realize it, he was stabbing me. Wow. And it was, it was almost like an outer body experience. I, I could not believe this was happening to me, but yeah, I was pregnant and I had to protect my baby. So as he's stabbing I'm trying to protect my baby. So I have a lot of defensive stab wounds on my hands. And, and he just just continued to stab. It was like, it was almost as, it's like he stabbed forever, but yet all of a sudden it just stopped. And I'm laying there and I just couldn't believe that it just, that he just stabbed me like that. And he just calmly got up and walked away. I could hear him walking, so I know he wasn't running. He was walking, just so calm. And I heard the vehicle start, and I said, oh, I, I got to get up. I got to try and get help. Where is he? I didn't, I, I didn't know where he was. I, I rolled over on my hands and knees and started getting up. He just so slowly drove right by my head and, and looked right down at me, and I looked right up at him. And he drove away. 
He didn't speed off. He just drove away. There's something incredibly terrifying about the calmness of this situation and the fact that he knows you're still alive and he's just watching you. Yeah, he was very cold. Very, very cold, unemotional. He, I guess, did what he what he had planned to do and he left. And uh, I, I got up. I was like, I've got to get up and I've got to get some help. So I somehow got up went to my car and I, I knew a friend of mine lived about two miles down the road on that same main road. So I said, okay, I'm going to go to his house. He can get me some help. So I started driving towards my friend's house. And before I knew it, I was behind him. Wow. I was like, I'm behind him. Oh my God, I'm behind him. And I instantly was scared because now he's going to know where I'm going to pull in and possibly come back. I, I didn't know what, what else he was capable of doing. So as I'm following him, my friend's house came up on the right. So I immediately pulled into my friend's driveway. And uh, I had so much blood. God, I can, I can remember the blood just gushing out of me. I can hear it gushing out of me. So I pulled into my friend's house, and he came to the door. My friend came to the door, his green door, and I just said, some a-hole just stabbed the crap out of me, and I collapsed on his steps. And while he's calling for help, his brother-in-law came over from next door, and um, this guy turned around, the one that stabbed me, turned around and drove back by the house, and we heard him like break it, like squeal his tires by the house. Like he was stopping and then he took off. So he definitely knew where I was. And then help came. That is absolutely terrifying. And you know, it's, I can just about imagine that you feel safe at your friend's house, but then there's still this level of like, I know he's around here. Am I truly safe? What else is he capable of doing? Well, it was very shortly after that, the cops came and um, a couple of police officers that I knew. By the time I got to my friend's house, I was in and out of consciousness. I, I don't remember much after that. Um, everything I was told from, you know, the time that the cops showed up to me going to the hospital, I don't remember much of it. It was um, different people telling me, you know, certain things that happened. Like, rescue took forever to get there. And uh, I can remember hearing the cop on the radio, rescue needs to get here now. And Keen Rescue had started to come and get me. And um, they realized they were two miles out of their jurisdiction. So they turned around and went back. So I had to wait for the town rescue to come. So that was a bit crazy. So you were stabbed 27 times. I was stabbed 27 times. I had two collapsed lungs. Um, he cut the tendon in my hand, tendon in my knee. Uh, he sliced my juggler. And he lacerated my liver where I had a piece of my liver removed. But my baby was unharmed. There was no stab or anything to my baby whatsoever. She was perfectly fine, thank God. I think that's absolutely incredible. I mean, that both of you were able to survive this. 
you know, thank you so much for sharing that story. I know that this is an incredibly traumatic story to be sharing and opening up to the world about, but it's an important story, and I think it's really important to hear it from you. Thank you. Yeah, it is an important one. It's like my story don't end the night that I was attacked. My story goes on for another 34 years because this this changed me so much. It changed my life. Two months after my attack, my daughter, when I had her um, in October, she had to fight for her life because of my attack. She was put on a ventilator and we didn't think she was going to make it. And she fought for her life for, for two weeks. And it was so hard standing there watching her fight for her life again. <laughs> it, was, um, it was so difficult. And you know, there was, there's just so much that happened after my attack that was a, a direct result of my attack. But after my attack, I, I didn't know what to do or, or what to think or how I was supposed to feel or even who to talk to about, you know, a lot of the trauma that I was feeling inside a lot of the depression and the anger and all my symptoms from PTSD, which I didn't even know I had PTSD. It was 20 years after my attack when I, I was clinically diagnosed with PTSD. You know, my life was hard. Victims have to deal with so much stuff after something traumatic. People don't realize, people don't really know, like financial, because my attacker was never never found or, or convicted, I was responsible for all my doctor bills. And it was like, as far as I'm concerned, they weren't my doctor bills, but I was responsible for them. You know, all, all my um, PTSD symptoms, I had to deal with that on my own. New Hampshire was one of six states in the whole United States that did not have a victim compensation fund in the state of New Hampshire. It's a federally funded program that helps victims. They set you up with uh, counseling. They set you up with a victim advocate for court appearances. They pay for your doctor bills. They pay for missing work. They help families of deceased victims of a violent crime. And at the time of my attack, this program didn't exist in New Hampshire. And that program would have helped me a lot. And I was contacted by one of the advocates and I ended up going and writing a letter and then appearing in front of the Senate to pass this bill to have this in New Hampshire. So now New Hampshire has this victim compensation fund program, which is a wonderful program. Absolutely. They, they've helped thousands and thousands of people. Unfortunately, they couldn't help me because my attack happened before the program came about. You know, I, I'm glad the program's there now to help so many people. I'm really glad to hear that despite this trauma that you had, despite the fact that this wasn't available for you, you wanted to do something for other people like you because you know what that's like to go through it and not have that support and the resources that could really help you. Absolutely. So what was the initial investigation like? Oh, <laughs> well, for one, I kind of remember that 
internet and social media and none of that stuff existed back in 1988. So after my attack, I did not know about this serial killer. And I ended up reading it in a newspaper that I was possibly a victim of the Connecticut River Valley serial killer, which was crazy to me. So obviously after my attack and after I I was better and able to really speak with the detectives a lot, they interviewed me quite a few times. I gave them a description of the vehicle, which was a early 80s um, Jeep Wagoneer with wood grain side and uh, did a composite of, of him. And um, they took fingerprints and everything off my car. They scraped underneath my fingernails while I was in the hospital because they thought maybe I scratched him. So they had all this evidence. And uh, 34 years later, there's been no arrest. Unfortunately, as of today, all the Connecticut River Valley killings are unsolved. Nobody's ever been arrested or charged. How do you deal with knowing that the police aren't really actively looking for this man who attacked you and possibly killed a bunch of other women? It angers me. A few years ago, we had a potential suspect. This man came to me and said that he thought it was possibly his father and that if they have DNA up in Concord, that he would be willing to give his DNA because his dad passed away. So when we went to, when he went to Concord to give his DNA, we have found out that the detectives, the detective unit, the cold case unit up there lost all my evidence. Oh my God. All my evidence is gone. Like they, they took my windshield. It's like, how do you lose that? So in my case, I don't know about the other cases of the Connecticut River Valley, but my case all the evidence is gone and missing. So I was told that about 12 years ago. And then a couple of years ago, this is kind of funny, but it's not. It makes me mad. A couple of years ago, they contacted me. They called me and said, we have some fingerprints off your car and we'd like to re-fingerprint you so we can start eliminating fingerprints. Now, this is 30 years later, okay? which I, I'm thinking, what do you mean you, you have no evidence? And I was like, okay, um, yeah, I'll go in and be re-fingerprinted. And uh, he said, okay, I'll call you in a couple of weeks and we'll set something up. Yeah, it's been almost three years and I haven't heard back from them. Oh my God. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it's frustrating, but um, I don't have a lot of faith in New Hampshire with New Hampshire solving crimes. For a state with such a low crime rate, not right now, but before, a lot more crimes should be solved than, than what is. And I just feel like, so I get so frustrated. It's like somebody's got to be held accountable for, one, losing my evidence. I mean, as far as I know, there's one person that works in an evidence locker or an evidence room that's responsible for the evidence. Why isn't that person held responsible? And and I've heard that this is a pretty common thing where evidence is lost or or damaged or whatever. And it, to me, I don't care how old a case is. That evidence is important. Absolutely. I mean, we've seen a few cases that are 30, 40 years old that have been solved in the United States. 
these cases are solvable. And I just feel like they've had a lot of missed opportunities to solve these cases. I mean, even like taking your fingerprints, there's another New Hampshire case that I've covered. And I spoke with his son to do the episode. It's Everett Delano. There was a fingerprint that was left. This was from 1966. And there was a fingerprint that was left in the bathroom that they lifted. You know, they ran it when um, APHIS started and nothing came up. But then they ran it again around like 2014. And there was a hit. And ultimately, this man died by suicide um, after he realized that the cops were closing in on him. But the fact that over 50 years had passed and that fingerprint was the key to like giving this family closure and solving this case, I think is so incredibly important. And it just the fact that they reached out to you about fingerprints, I'm like, that could be so vital to solving this case. Oh, absolutely. Because when he opened my door... His hand was on my door and they said that they lifted quite a few fingerprints. And right after my attack, like everybody that worked on my car, I had a mechanic that worked on my car recently before that, my husband, myself, a lot of people they had come in and and get fingerprinted because they did lift a few fingerprints off my car and they were doing process of elimination. I, I just... They don't like to give you information, too. You ask, and it's, well, this is an open investigation, and we can't give you that information. Yeah. Well, you know what? Use the information then. You know, do something with it. Solve this. It's so frustrating. You know, 34 years. Some of these cases with the Connecticut River Valley murders are, are over almost 40 years, if not 40 years. So it's... It's sad that these families have no answers. And it's sad that these victims have never had justice. And it, it's, it's frustrating. And two, a lot of these families are older now and the parents are starting to pass away. And it's really heartbreaking to know that they're coming to the end of their life and they still don't have that closure. Exactly. Bernice Kornemash's parents just passed away within the past couple of years. And now they've they've never been able to um, get any answers where hers either. So yeah, it's it's sad that these parents have to um, pass away and, and not have answers. Absolutely. Answers that they so wanted for all these years and deservedly should have. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I can just about imagine that you've probably had a lot of people or psychics approach you over the years and say that they think they know who did it, right? <laughs> I, oh, I have. <laughs> I, <I've, laughs> I, and I don't want to laugh about it because any information, any new information is very welcoming. For sure. But I have had over the years several people come knock on my door 
and uh, oh, it's I know who did this to you. He was my brother-in-law, or I know who did this to you. I went to school with him. Um, yeah, there's been quite a few, but there was one in particular that uh, if you look up the Connecticut River Valley murders, unfortunately, his name is everywhere, and that's Michael Nicolau. So. In 2005, there was a 56-year-old Vietnam War veteran, and his name was Michael Nicolau. He ended up killing his wife and his stepdaughter before killing himself in St. Petersburg, Florida. Seemingly unrelated event, seemingly isolated. But then, two years later, in 2007, you told outlets that you believed Michael Nicolau was the man that attacked you that night and ultimately the valley killer. How did this connection or realization come about? Well, I had a private investigator contact me about Michael Nicolau. And um, she seemed at first that she had a lot of credible information. And so we did a lot of, of conversation back and forth for a few years, a couple of years anyways. And I never felt positive it was him. I was very open-minded. And I wanted to hear what she had for information. But I also took it with an open mind. She spent two years completely convincing me that it was him. And I very quickly realized that she was all about media. And I kind of suspected that she was doing all this for her her own agenda. Mm. And... um. So at first, I, I, didn't, I didn't want to say, okay, yeah, it was him, because I didn't, I never felt that way. But she convinced me. She had a lot of credible information. But then afterwards, I realized a lot of her information was uh, secondhand, hearsay, circumstantial. All the information that she came up with, she just tried to really fit into Michael Nicolau. Then I started hearing other people say, well, this doesn't fit with Michael Nicolau or this doesn't fit with Michael Nicolau. So I started questioning her about some of the hearsay things. And um, I ended up severing all ties with her because she she got real defensive when I, I was thinking, you know, maybe it wasn't him. Um, some things don't fit. But she never wanted to really address the things that didn't fit. She only wanted to address the things that did fit or she made things fit. So um, I had uh, contact with a, another journalist that investigates murders and crimes and serial killers and stuff like that. And um, I had him look at everything with Michael Nicolau, new eyes, fresh eyes, you know. And even he said, there's no real evidence that it was him. We can't exclude him, but we can't include him. And the investigators, uh, the detectives up in Concord, they supposedly investigated all the M Michael Nicolau information. And they even said it's, it's not conclusive that it was him. It's not as if they had enough evidence to say it was him because they really didn't. So, I mean, as of today, I truly believe it was not Michael Nicolau. A lot of things don't fit. For one, a serial killer doesn't change a weapon. Now, he killed himself, his wife, and his, his stepdaughter with a gun. There was never any proof that he has ever attacked anybody 
in any manner with a knife. So it's little things like that that didn't fit with him. And um, after looking at a lot of things that people have brought up to me about Michael Nicolau, I truly don't believe it was him. Now, was Michael Nicolau a bad man? He was a very bad man. That guy had a lot of issues. But do I think he's the Connecticut River Valley serial killer? No, I don't. I also think it says a lot that the police were like, well, we really can't rule him in, but we can't rule him out. But there's not enough evidence to conclude that this is the guy. Because in a case like this, I mean, that would be such an easy out for them to be like, yep, it was him. Case closed. We're done with this. But I think it says a lot about the investigation that they're like, eh, we can't really do that. We don't know if it's him conclusively. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And also, I love hearing this side of it. You know, if you Google Michael Nicolau or if you Google your name, articles from like that 2005, 2006 period come up and are quoting you as saying, yes, this is definitely him. But now like that time has passed and, you know, you're able to speak out more without the influence of her information. And, you know, you're saying, actually, no, I don't think it's him. So I love hearing the deeper context to this story and what we're not seeing when we read articles that were previously printed in newspaper. It's it's really um, I, I've had so many people come to me with very little information saying that they felt like they knew who it was. She came to me with an abundance amount of information. And it took her a long time to, she convinced me that it was him. And when we were started doing the, the media, I never wanted to say to the media that I felt like it was him. But she had told me, if I didn't say that, nobody would take us seriously. Oof. So I was kind of like, okay, I do want people to take this seriously. I want the, the authorities to investigate him. Um, she felt like they were doing nothing, which they actually were investigating, but she felt like they weren't. So I felt like, okay, I really want them to take me seriously. Okay, I'll say it was him. I, and I wish I didn't, but I was in that situation where I really wanted this to be solved. And I really wanted the authorities to take this seriously and to investigate it. So I ultimately said it was him. Um, I wish I didn't. But I understand why from an empathetic standpoint, why you did. Yeah, some people do, some people don't. I guess you have to be in my shoes to really understand why I did say it. For sure. It must be such a heavy weight to carry knowing that there were six women before you who weren't able to escape like you did. That's not something that most people in their life will ever have to deal with. But I love that you're so open and incredibly honest about your recovery as a survivor. But I imagine this wasn't an easy journey. What did the beginning of your path to recovery look like? Well, when I started counseling, my life was a mess. I was a serious compulsive gambler. Addiction is a symptom of PTSD. I, I had attempted suicide twice before this. Uh, I battled depression really bad. And uh, I had um, 
belonged to an organization for 25 years that I love very, very much. And I ultimately stole from them because of my gambling. And uh, I went to jail. And that's when I was court ordered to start counseling. At first, I was doing counseling for my gambling addiction. And it was a couple of months after I started counseling, I started bringing up my attack. And my counselor, she was so awesome. She just was like, this happened to you? And we talked about it for the next few weeks. And she's like, I want to clinically diagnose you with PTSD. And I was like, PTSD? That's only um, servicemen and women have PTSD that have fought in battle. And she went over the computer and she printed up a uh, bunch of symptoms of PTSD. And she gave it to me and she said, you go home and you look at this. And you tell me you don't have PTSD when you come back next week. And uh, I went home and it was in my pocketbook a few days. And I took it out one day and I looked at it and I was like, I'm looking at the symptoms and I'm thinking, oh my God, I have PTSD. And then I'm thinking, okay, I have PTSD. Am I, I I'm never going to get better. And I went that following week back to her and, and I said, okay, I have PTSD. I said, so now what? And she said, we start healing you. And that's what happened. I, we started working on all my symptoms of PTSD and it completely changed my life. Am I ashamed of what I'd done in my past, my bad choices? No, because I learned from them. And I know she has brought to my attention that the bad choices that I made are a direct result of my attack. Now, don't get me wrong. I've taken full responsibility for all my bad choices I've ever made in my life. I've taken responsibility for that. I made those bad choices. But I can't help but think, had I gotten the counseling 20 years before this, would I have made those bad choices? So, I mean, now my life, my life is really good. I, I thrive to be a better person today than I was yesterday, every single day. And I want to help people. There's so many uh, victims out there that have gone through trauma. And now when I say trauma, I mean any kind of trauma. It could be car accident. It could be rape. It could be molestation. It could be child abuse. Any kind of trauma. When you go through trauma like that, you don't just get over it and move on. But yet you don't know what to do or where to go. And I believe in telling my story, I'll be able to help somebody that has gone through some kind of trauma. Let them know that you can live a normal, happy life after you've gone through something like this with the right help. Have you been able to speak with any other survivors in a way that's helped you on your healing journey? It's funny because I never really, I never really have spoke to other people that have been through something like I've been through. I mean, how many people do you know that have been seven months pregnant, stabbed 27 times, by a serial killer. I think you're the only one. <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't anybody that I could really talk to and relate to. And, you know, I hid a lot of things that I was feeling and going through. And then I started this, this podcast, Invisible Tears. And I named it Invisible Tears because I cried a million tears in silence that nobody knew about. You know, after my attack, people came up to me and, 
you know, a lot of people are like, oh, you're so strong. And I don't know that I could have survived what you survived. And how lucky are you to survive what you went through? And, you know, it's as if people were putting me on this pedestal that I didn't ask to be put on. Yeah. And I mean, I'd smile and nod when people said stuff like this. But in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, okay, how lucky am I to have been stabbed 27 times? And, you know, what choice did I have but to survive for my daughter? So these things were going through my mind all the time. But with people coming and telling me this stuff and putting me on this pedestal, I felt like I had to stay strong and not show my real emotion because that would have showed me being weak. And I didn't want people to think that I was weak. I I wanted people to think that I was a strong person because that's what people thought I was. And um, (laughs) I, I was so broken. I was so broken for so many years and nobody knew it. And, you know, in a way, I don't even think I knew how broken I was until I started counseling, until I went to jail. I think when I went to jail is when I, I realized, oh my God, <laughs> I am this messed up. I am in jail right now. So when I got the counseling, it, it, was, um, it was my way of really addressing all these feelings I had so deep down inside and understanding why I was feeling these feelings. You know, like you, like you asked, there's nobody out there that I knew that could relate to the way I was feeling. And that's why I, I really kept everything inside. Well, I love that you're taking, again, your experience and flipping it in a way that you can help others who might be feeling that but don't have anyone to relate to, even if it's, you know, a different kind of trauma. You're like, I understand. I can help you through sharing my own trauma and my own stories and, you know, encouraging you to get help. I just really love that you're kind of flipping the script on your story to help others. I just don't want people to feel hopeless. Yeah. I know that I've felt hopeless at times thinking this is my life. It's never going to get any better. And it is better. <laughs> my life is good. I'm, I'm, again, living a happy, normal life. So if somebody's out there feeling that hopeless, I want them to know that you don't have to, that, you know, you can get past trauma and it doesn't have to control your life. And it definitely does not have to control your destiny and your future of your life. What's it like hearing such a personal and traumatic story, your story being told on television or podcasts or news? It's sometimes kind of difficult because they, they label me as the, the victim of the serial killer and I'm the survivor of the serial killer. And when, when you read online or you see in the news or you see the stories, even with the other victims that didn't survive, you only hear about the bad that's happened to them. And you never really hear about who they really were. You know, these women that were murdered, they were, they were mothers, sisters, cousins, aunts, best friends to somebody. And, and I guess like when I hear my story on podcasts, it's like, I, I hear them label me as a victim and, and I don't like it. I, I, I'm a survivor and I had a life 
I was living a life. I was going to be a new mom at the time of my attack. But you don't hear that stuff when I hear it. I don't know. Sometimes it's just, uh, it makes me sad. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly why I created Murder, She Told, because there are a lot of stories, especially in the New England area, that have never gotten any attention. But when they do, it's just this like little blip about their death and not anything about their life. So I work with families to tell their life story because they're just so much more than that last moment of their life. And, you know, the biggest thing, I'm a credentialed victims advocate. um, And the biggest thing that I try to do is just keep listening to survivors and learning from families and their experience. You know, the, the true crime genre has really come a long way, but we have an even longer way to go. And there's certainly more creators out there doing harmful work and sensational work than ones that are trying to do it ethically. You know, I I am certainly not perfect, but I just want to keep growing in a positive direction as an advocate. So with that, what, in your opinion, what can creators do to make this space more supportive for survivors and for families? More focus on the victims rather than the serial killers or the people that did the murders. I think they get enough limelight, and I think more focus needs to be on the the victims and the families. I absolutely agree. (laughs) But speaking of, I'm really excited to see that other survivors and families are taking up space in podcasting and reclaiming their stories. So, you know, you mentioned Invisible Tears. I was really excited to see that you were doing a brand new show. Tell me a little bit about it. Oh, we've been working on Invisible Tears for about two years. Wow. It's going to be covering a little bit of everything. It's given me the perfect platform for me to tell my story in my words. I'm going to be very raw and and honest and um, really open about talking about my healing and my life after my attack. We're going to talk about uh, some cold cases that don't get enough attention. We're going to really focus on um, each one of the victims of the Connecticut River Valley uh, murders and their lives before they were brutally murdered. And, um, you know, I I feel like I want to be their voice because they don't have voices now. That was stolen from them by this monster. So I want to I want to be their voice and and talk about who they were before their brutal murders. And um, I really want to get out there that these are unsolved. These are not solved at all. And we're also, we're interviewing some um, family members of the victims. And we're going to talk a lot about mental health. Part of our our podcast is going to be the Jane and Amanda show. I have a wonderful team. Amanda is my co-host and uh, Drew is my editor. And um, they're just the perfect team for me. They look out for me and Amanda is my life coach. And um, I just want to get my story out there and maybe help somebody talk about PTSD. And so it's going to be a a little bit about everything pertaining to true crime and my attack and other unsolved crimes and um, uh, unsolved murders in New Hampshire. Because I think seriously, I think New Hampshire has a serious issue with serial killers right now. I believe (laughs) there's three of them roaming in New Hampshire right now. Yeah, And we are definitely going to touch base on that, you know, and get get some of these unsolved murders, their stories out there, like um, Trish Haynes. 
She, <laughs> I covered that one. I know you yeah. did. And uh, I'm, they're doing an event in Concord yes. on September 24th, and I'm I'm attending. Oh, it, amazing! I would love to come. And uh, what a it infuriates me I that know. they have not seen justice. Oh, so yeah, I want to bring attention to all this stuff. Invisible Tears is just it's the first time I've ever had a platform where I can really tell my story and talk about what I want to talk about and um, maybe help somebody. We also have another um, podcast that is um, involved with, and that's um, Dark Valley. And that's another podcast that's going to be really focusing on the Connecticut River Valley um, murders. So that one will be coming out in uh, this spring. Amazing. I'm, I'm working with Crawl Space Media with that one and with Jen and Tim and Lance. Love and them. I, I'm super excited. Oh, They're aren't great. they awesome? <laughs> they are. So I'm going to be working with them with Dark Valley. And uh, we've been doing quite a bit of recording and, and preparing for that to come out in, in the spring. So, yeah, it's um, Invisible Tears is just, it's, it's my baby. And I... We just uh, launched two weeks ago, and I'm I'm super excited about it. The feedback's been great. The support's been great. I'm thrilled for you. I'm so excited to check Thank this you. out. Everyone should go check out Invisible Tears. How can people find you and connect with you on social media or follow Invisible Tears? Uh, you can follow us on Invisible Tears um, on Facebook, and we have a website is Invisible dash tears.com. And um, we're just starting up um, other social media, which we'll be updating on our Facebook page. And um, that's where you can find us. I just like to add one thing. Of course. And um, I, I really, I want to say these ladies' names. Yes. Because they're just so close to me. There's Kathy and there's Elizabeth and there's Eva and there's Ellen, Bernice, Linda and Barbara. They're one of the reasons, a main reason why I'm doing this podcast, to get their stories out to be their voice. Their murders are unsolved. They are the victims of the Connecticut River Valley killer. And I just want people to know these are unsolved. They are unsolved murders. Well, thank you so, so much for coming on and sharing your incredible story. I'm just so excited to have been able to chat with you and get your story out there. Oh, thank you so much for allowing me to share my story. I'm very grateful. If you have any information about the Connecticut River Valley Killer, please reach out to the New Hampshire Cold Case Unit at 603-225-8600 or submit an anonymous tip via the form in the show notes. More resources and information about the victims of the Connecticut River Valley Killer will be available on MurderSheTold.com. If you are struggling with your mental health or recovery from trauma, help is available 24-7. Please call the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration hotline at 1-800-662-HELP or find more information online at samhsa.gov. Your life is important and you matter. I want to thank you so much for listening. I'm so grateful that you chose to be here and I couldn't do this without you. Thank you. A very special thanks to Jane for taking the time to share her story with me and to her team for helping make that happen. 
If you loved this episode, please consider sharing it with a friend or sharing it on social media. Not only does it help other people find the show, it also helps get these cases out there. I'm Kristen Seavey, and this is Murder, She Told. Thank you for listening. Thank you.